It's always a privilege to be here with you, as you can probably pick up. We're starting a new series this morning, uh, James Volume 1. Yes, there'll be a Volume 2. Uh, we are looking at uh, the first part of James in this fall series, and for those of you who are still cleansing really tightly to summer, uh, fall is coming this week, and so uh, the fall series, we'll be looking at James Volume 1, looking at the first part of James, and then after our Christmas series, after the first year, we'll be finishing up by looking at James Volume 2 with the rest of the book. Yes, we are planned already through Christmas into next year. Uh, but I'm excited about looking at this book of James. Uh, of course, it's written by James, a brother of Jesus. And so you have Jesus, the older brother, who's the son of God through Mary. And then we have James, who's one of his siblings, who, of course, uh, is from uh, Mary. And probably the father would have been Joseph, right? Joseph and Mary. And, and I often thought, like, that would have been sort of a bummer in some ways to, to be a younger brother to Jesus you wonder if uh, Mary or Joseph ever got frustrated and said, hey, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? To which I think he probably went, yeah, right, you know? Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that ever happened, but who knows? Uh, it was written about AD 60, um, and he's writing about the topic of faith. And as you just saw in the video, so does Paul. Paul in the book of Romans writes about faith. And in Romans, he, he's writing about what does it mean? He's answering the question what does it mean to be saved? What, is it, what does it mean to, to, to be able to find salvation in Jesus Christ? And Paul writes, by faith alone. It comes by faith, trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then James writes about faith too, but he's asking a different question. He's answering the question, how is genuine faith uh, recognized? How do you recognize if you have genuine faith? And he says, by the fruits of your life. And so it's interesting Authentic Christian faith, James would say, is shown by one's good works. And so you have Paul who writes in Romans and clearly instructs us that salvation is by faith and not good works. In other words, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Jesus paid the price once and for all on the cross. And as we receive his, him as Lord and Savior, we understand that he died for our sins, was resurrected for our salvation. He did the work. All we need to do is place our faith in him. But James clarifies that good works will accompany those who have genuine faith. In other words, for James, faith is not merely something that's believed. Faith is something we do. It's lived out in active obedience in the day-to-day -day operating of our lives. And so that's what we're going to be exploring. Uh, James is interesting. He, he doesn't simply tell us what we should do as believers. He tells us how to do it. It's a very practical letter on how to, how to do it, how to, how to be a follower of Jesus. And so I, I love the fact if you're here, whether you have yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe you're checking out the things of Christ. It's a great series for you because you may be asking, what does it mean to be a Christian? And in this series, James is going to answer that for us. You may have been a Christian for many, many years, and, and you're just sort of, sort of operating through this, you know, what does genuine faith look like? Maybe you're still asking some of those questions, and James is going to offer that to us too. So whether you're yet to be in the kingdom or part of the kingdom, this is a series for you, a series for you. Now, what's interesting is James deals with our own personal walk with God, our self-care, if you will, before he deals with our relationship with others. And sometimes as believers, I think that can, that can be difficult for us because we're so others-oriented. At least we know we ought to be. <laughs> and, and I was even meeting with a, a friend of mine. We're, we're going through the one-on-one study together next. And he, he, was, he was wrestling with that in prayer. He said, I feel so guilty when I pray for myself. I'm like, don't. Our Heavenly Father wants you to pray for yourself as well as with others. And, and so James starts out the letter of James 
uh, this book of James by, by dealing with self-care, then with our relationship with others. And I was trying to wrap my mind around that. And I was thinking about sort of the flight attendant spiel when you get on an airplane. How many of you have flown? You know, they go through the whole thing. You know, you have the, you have the card in the pocket in the seat in front of you, take it out, which no one does. And, and, and they go through their whole thing. And they say something like this too. They say, oxygen and air pressure are always being monitored in the event of a, de- a decompression an oxygen mask will, will appear. And, and I always sit there and go, well, if that mask drops down, I'm just going to say, Jesus, I guess I'm going to see you pretty soon. You know? But there's this interesting line. They say, if you're traveling with a child or someone who requires assistance, do what? Secure your mask first and then assist them. Why? Because if you don't have oxygen, if you can't breathe, you can't help them. And James wants us to understand as followers of Christ that if we're not spiritually breathing... We can't help those around us. In fact, the reality is this, that the most important thing in our life ought to be our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the greatest gift we can give to others flows out of that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to find that James emphasizes really, what is our, what does your life with God look like? In fact, keep that question in your mind. What does your life with God look like? And let the words that James writes, inspired by God, sort of help you cultivate that life in Christ. And so we're going to start out this week looking at James 1, 1 through 4. He starts out in verse 1 with a sort of the customary greeting we see in the letters in the New Testament. He writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So James begins, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it could also be written, a servant of Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord. And so from the very beginning, James wants us to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. He's God. And it's very interesting when you think about it, because James is writing this as a brother of Jesus. And so he could have written, James, a brother of Jesus. You better listen up. We also know that James was a leader in the church. In fact, the first Jerusalem council that was pulled together to sort of figure out what do we do as Jewish Christians with Gentile Christians, James like was the one who, who ran that meeting. And so he also could have wrote, you know I'm a leader in the church, listen up. But he doesn't. He wants us to understand that he's a servant of Christ. He's a servant to the church. He takes a servant role to the, to the one who is God, who is savior of his life. And he does that in much the same sense that Paul does in his letters. Paul had much spiritual authority, but often when in the beginning of his letters say, but I'm a servant. I'm a servant to Christ and a servant to you. In fact, Paul started out that way when Paul was wondrously introduced to Christ on the road to Damascus. And he realizes really for the first time who Jesus really is. He asks a question. He says, what shall I do, Lord? And James, really, the whole book of James is going to answer that question. What shall I do, Lord? Like I'm a believer now. What shall I do, Lord? James continues his greeting to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He uses this Old Testament language to refer to the church. And he's talking about the church who's part of the diaspora which are those who are in Christ, Christians who have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution. Now, why is that important? Because we're just about to read about trials. And the people he's writing to are certainly going through them. 
They've been dispersed across the Roman Empire because they've been persecuted and persecuted simply because they're followers of Jesus. And so here's James. James writes as a humble servant of Christ and his church to fellow believers scattered due to persecution, instructing them with practical counsel on how to follow Christ amidst the circumstances of life. I wonder this morning, before we even jump into the rest of the the passage, how many of you have ever gone through a trial? (laughs) How many of you ever gone through a circumstance of life? Well, then this letter is for you. This series is for you. So James begins speaking of the benefits of trials. We'll get there in a minute. The benefits of trials. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I believe all of us would agree that we normally do not face trials with joy. In fact, the reality of it is we spend most of our life trying to avoid trials. But we got to remember that James is writing to individuals who are facing trials. They're in them anyway. And so he's going to write to them about how to benefit from them. And it's true for all of us, whether believer or non a believer, whether a follower of Christ or not, we all face trials. The difference is in Christ there's a way to benefit from them. Jesus spoke of trials, John 16, 33, second part of that verse. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. I always joke and say that's one of the fewest, few verses people actually memorize. <laughs> it's certainly not a verse you get up in the morning before you start off the day and read usually, but we probably should because of the promise after that. But take t- part, he says, I have overcome the world. <laughs> You're going to face trials of all kinds and tribulation, but Jesus says, I've overcome them. You can trust in me. I'm with you. Here's the simple truth. Trials in life are inevitable, Benefiting from them or not. Trials in life are inevitable, but benefiting from those trials is not. And so he writes about three practical principles of how to benefit from trials. And here's the first. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Count them all joy. And again, we already looked at the fact that most of us try to keep away from trials. Seldom do we actually find joy in them. But James doesn't just write, be joyful. He says, all joy. Like the fullness of joy. Now, by the way, he's not trying to to have a sort of manufactured joy in the midst of trials, sort of the fake smile. You know, how is life? How are you doing? Great. I mean, when I was in a seminary, we had a ton of international students, and so they had to take a, before the school year started, a, a seminar on how to assimilate into American culture. And I was so embarrassed when one of the things they taught them was when an American asks you how you're doing, they don't really care. It's just simply a greeting. And the way I found out was a friend who I had just met came up to me and said, hey, we learned this. Is that true? And I thought for a minute, I went, yeah, it actually is. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been with somebody like and you saw them ask, how are you doing? The person starts to actually answer and they're like, oh, man, you know? But he doesn't want us to manufacture joy with a fake smile. He wants us to have a a genuine joy in what Christ is about to do. We have to see trials as as testing that produces a desired result if we're going to find joy. And and it's interesting, that word trial in the Greek gives us this amazing word picture. Uh, It's a word used of a bird uh, testing their wings for the first time. 
Now, I don't know if birds have faith. I don't know how that works. I don't know how, how complex their minds are. But, but for me, if I didn't know if my wings worked or not, and I was about to jump out of the nest, that would be a big faith venture for me. That's a trial. That's the picture that the word gives us of a trial. We're, we're testing out, we're, we're, we're venturing out. In fact, that word trial is the same word often t- um, translated in the New Testament as temptation. And the second verse I ever memorized was a, was a verse on temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's filled with this promise of, of victory. It says, no temptation has overcome you, but that which is common to man, and God is faithful. And he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but when you are tempted, he'll also provide you a way of escape that you may endure it. Think about that for a minute. First of all, no temptation, no trial, no test you go through is unique with you. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have a unique circumstance because you are a unique human being. It just simply means in the categories of temptation or the categories of trials or tests, other people have gone through that, so you're not alone. I enjoy knowing that. But others have gone through what I've gone through as well. It says God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And sometimes when I've gone through a test or a trial, I've asked God, don't trust me so much. Right? It's not more than you can handle. Why? Because he's going to give you a way. I like the way the NIV says it, to stand up under it. Or as the ESV says here, to endure it. There's victory. There's victory. The life of a, of a believer is no different than the life of a non-believer in this sense, that we all go through trials. We all go through difficulties. In fact, remember Jesus, our Savior, his path led to the cross. And so it shouldn't surprise us. In Luke 9.23, Jesus is speaking of those who would follow him, and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Daily, he says. Daily. So where's the joy come from? Well, we look again to our model, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. Hebrews 12.2, the writer gives us insight into how we can have joy even in the midst of trials. He writes, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, desiring the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where did Christ find joy? It doesn't say he found joy in the cross, he, he found joy heading towards the cross because he knew the glorious destination. The joy he had wasn't in the trial. The joy was what the trial was going to produce, which was our salvation and his exaltation. And with this in mind, we can face trials with hope and joy, realizing that as we go through the trials, that what awaits us is blessings, growth, maturity in Christ, confirmation of our genuine faith. I was thinking, because it's interesting, he says there in verse 2, various kinds of trials. And so I went through scripture, I said, well, what type of trials stand out? And I found three that I I just want to point out. I'm sure there's more, but at least three prominent types of trials that we go through. The first is cause and effect. We reap what we sow. We all know those. Have you ever gone through a, a trial and you realize, I brought this upon myself? You know? Any married people out there? Guys, you ever buy something and brought it home all excited and your wife went, Where's, where'd you get that? I brought it upon myself, right? I, I brought that upon myself. Ever, ever done something, you know, and you're like, okay, this is happening simply because I made a dumb decision. That's a cause and effect. You know, where do you find joy in that? Well, in two things. First of all, the mercy of God. I'm so thankful that God is so merciful. It gives me second, third, fourth, hundred chances. Also, the lessons we can learn. In fact, here's the reality of life. 
When you go through a trial that's a cause and effect trial, if you don't learn from that, God will let you make a bad mistake again so you can learn the lesson again. And so I've often found when I'm in a cause and effect trial, I often say to myself, Lord, help me learn the lesson you're teaching me now. I don't want to go through this again. But that's a cause and an effect trial. It's common. We've all faced them. The second category I'll throw out is spiritual trials. Now, this is sort of misleading because every trial, really, when you think about it, is a spiritual trial because we're spiritual beings. But what do I mean by a spiritual trial? Well, First Peter, uh, Peter's writing about this in First Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, then drop down to verse 16, and there he says, And yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. These trials come simply because we're believers going upstream against a culture that's going downstream. Not everyone's excited about the fact we're followers of Christ. In fact, Jesus said that they'll persecute you because of me. And they're not haters of you, they're haters of me. They're hating me through you. And I was thinking about this even this morning as I'm in the habit of praying for for our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world. And I was praying for a particular elderly couple in Nepal who their kids kicked them out of the house. They're, they're like over 65 years old, kicked out of the house. In a nation where there is no, no uh, retirement benefits and those type of things, your kids are the only source of, uh, of those type of uh, benefits, if you will, in Nepal. Your kids take care of you. It's sort of the cultural thing. You help take care of their kids as they're growing up. When you get older, your kids take care of you. And because they're Christians, their kids kicked them out of the house. Why? Simply because they're Christians. Now, I understand that here in the States, we get sometimes persecuted for being believers, but in other parts of the world, they get persecuted with a capital P. For no other reason. You say, where's the joy in that? I think the joy sometimes, if you're persecuted as a believer, is sitting back and saying, I'm glad they recognized me. I'm glad they noticed. Heard people say that if you, if you were put on trial for being a follower of, a follower of Christ, would you be convicted? And when we're persecuted for just simply being followers of Christ, uh, the good news is someone noticed. There's joy in that. The third one's probably, I think, the most difficult one to to express joy in, especially all joy. And I'm going to call that spiritually unrevealed trials. Now, what do I mean by spiritually unrevealed trials? They're spiritual. I mean, all trials are spiritual because we're spiritual beings. But there's no rational or revealed reason why we're going through that trial. It's not cause and effect. We didn't bring it upon ourselves. It's, 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 not, it's not because we're followers of Jesus. It's just simply because we live in a fallen world where the scripture tells us, it's very honest about this, that even bad things happen to good people. And I was thinking about this particular trial, and my sister-in-law, Andrea, came to mind. When my sister-in-law was in her early 30s, I believe 33, she passed from complications of receiving her second set of lungs, second double lung transplant. She had received them because of cancer, and she had never smoked, wasn't raised in a home where smoking happened, so there was no cause and effect type situations, and it, it just happened. We live in a fallen world where people get sick. That's why I can't wait to get the new body in the new world, right? When we go to paradise, we don't deal with such things. Well, on this side of paradise, we deal with those things. Andrea was a force for God's kingdom. She was a Christian lobbyist on Capitol Hill. Andrea positively impacted the lives of many people for the cause of Christ. Now, let me just be honest. She faced setbacks. Uh, she suffered, uh, but she fought the good fight. In other words, she had her bad days. <laughs> she had her rough days. 
And yet, by and large, she, she fought a good fight. She really had joy in her life. Andrea's loved ones, her family, we, we often ask the questions, why should she face such suffering and trial? Have you ever seen people going through something like that? It's not a cause and effect thing. It's, it's why? Why, why, is, why is this happening? And, and the answer is we live in a fallen world. That's the only answer there is. And that sometimes those things happen. Maybe you're going through that right now or someone you, you love is going through a difficult time right now. And it, it was a deeply spiritual trial, but no rational, no revealed reason that we could understand. And I, I will say this, that she trusted herself to the Lord with all her heart. And she pointed people to Jesus. I mean, she, she, she trusted God for her strength. She was filled with her, her, his joy amidst all these, this trial. And, and as I thought about that, I thought about one particular letter when she had passed that was sent. She had, she had had the opportunity to do some amazing things, even in the midst of, of, of battling the cancer. Even before or after her first double lung transplant, she was once invited to go to John Hopkins University to speak to a bunch of medical students about what it meant to have faith in the midst of such a trial. What an amazing thing. Well, she received, my in-laws received a letter after she had passed from an atheist friend of hers, an atheist friend of hers. And he had said how much she had meant, how much she had meant to him. And as an atheist, that, that just being around her made her question, perhaps there is a God. When we go through such trials, the reality of it is we can either draw closer to God or further away from him. And it all lies in this. We may not always know the reason for trials, but we can be confident in our decision to trust Christ amidst them. That that sometimes in life we just don't get the reason. We We don't get the answer to the question why. But we can always trust in the who that God is with us, that he's strengthening us, that he's using us, and, and that he's, he's growing us up in this relationship we have with him through the trials. So the first, how do we benefit from trials? Well, we, we find joy and, and, and all, all joy in the midst of them. The second is this, grant the testing of your faith to produce steadfastness. Catch this, God is not the author of evil, suffering, and trials, but he is the one who has this glorious capacity to use them for our good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. The word testing there in verse three is, it, it literally means uh, proving or, or trying. In other words, we're, 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 the genuineness of our faith is being tested. In fact, First Peter, again, Peter's writing about this very thing in First Peter 1, 7. Listen to his words. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in his praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I was thinking of this testing and, and the revealing of the genuineness of our faith. And I thought of the day that I was standing across from my wife, Krista, uh, over 30 years ago now on a, on a June afternoon and we were speaking our vows to each other, making this commitment. And I made a lifelong commitment to her that at the time was an opinion whether or not I was going to keep it or not. You say, what do you mean? Did you not mean it? Yeah, but it wasn't tested. It was our wedding day. I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's an easy day to make such a commitment. But in the past 30 years, it's been tested. <laughs> We've gone through our trials And after 30 years, I stand before you to say, no, no, it was a genuine commitment. And I'm more committed to that that commitment today than I ever was. 
I'm steadfast in that commitment. He said, why do you share that? Because when you came to Jesus, when you received Christ as Lord and Savior and said yes to him, you said, Lord, you're going to be Lord and Savior in my life forever. And it was an opinion commitment. You believed you were going to keep that commitment, but you weren't tested. You weren't tried. Some of you mistakenly thought after you said yes to Jesus, all your problems were going to go away. And then you went home. The problems were there. You went to work and the person was still there. And, and, and you follow what I'm saying. But as you've walked with Christ and trusted in him, the genuineness of your faith has been revealed. You become more steadfast in that commitment. And so there's this beautiful thing that, that we can grow. It's only by meeting and passing life's test that faith grows into the steadfastness or the strong consistency. And so James writes, if you want to benefit from trials, find all joy in the midst of them, not because of the trial, but what they produce. He, he then writes and says, well, because it produces steadfastness, celebrate the fact that as you're being tested, that what's on the other side of it is something confident that was an opinion before, and now is a proven reality that you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ. Then the third thing he writes, Allow the work of steadfastness to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we continue to trust Christ, steadfastness will continue its work to ultimately complete that work within us, to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's a strong statement, church. Now, by the way, he's talking about our spiritual needs. It doesn't mean you're not going to be hungry from time to time doesn't mean that there, there are things earthly speaking that you may want. It, it means in the deepest part of who we are, we're becoming who Jesus created us to be. Paul writes about this in Philippians 3. Listen to verse 12. He says, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Dropping down to verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As the church... God calls us to grow and mature, becoming more and more like Christ, which is our present target. As we're maturing, we'll experience its full fulfillment when we see Christ face to face. What am I talking about? You've heard me say this before if you've been around here. I know I'm not what I used to be, but I thank God I'm not. I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm a work in progress. And that work is a beautiful thing. As we're committed to God, he's continuing to form Christ in us. And when we see Christ face to face, the work will be completed. In fact, the word James uses completed here is found in only one other place in the entire New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. This is what Paul writes to the church there in Thessalonica. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's James' point? We believers, when we allow steadfastness to do its work in us, we become increasingly perfect and complete and whole in every way. That the goal there is that we would be lacking nothing in our soul, that we'd understand that God is our everything, that he's faithful to us. And as we walk with him, yes, even through the trials of life, especially in the trials of life, he not only proves the genuineness of our faith in him, but he proves the genuineness of his faithfulness to us. In fact, the Greek there for that word that means it says lack nothing. Do you know what that means? Lack nothing. Like it's, it's as descriptive as it needs to be. Lacking nothing. God is our everything. 
And God desires us to to be able to, to have that wholeness of him. So here it is, here it is. When we believers allow steadfastness to have its perfect work in our lives, we'll grow to become more and more like Jesus, being perfected, maturing, growing onward to completion, perfect in every way, lacking in nothing, deficient in nothing, wanting nothing. Seriously, there are immediate benefits from steadfastness, but there's the ultimate benefit, the, the supreme benefit of eternity with Jesus. You don't need me to tell you this morning, life is not often fair. The victories in the Christian life are not always so obvious, but we're sure of this, that ultimate victory is ours who's in Christ, that Jesus gives us the victory. And we're faithful and we're steadfast. We, we can be confident that one day we will be in the winner's circle, the victor's circle in heaven, where all of heaven applauds and awaits us. Awaits for us to hear the words, well done, well done, well done. Trials are, are life's hidden rocks, if you will. They, they either lead us to disaster or they're stepping stones to something more. And so I ask you this morning, have you received Christ as Lord and Savior? Because to really receive benefits from trials, we've got to know him. He's created us to do life with him and with, with his church, with each other. Not to do life alone. It just doesn't work that way. So if you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, why not consider doing so this morning? Enter into that life you've been created to enter into. To have the power, the resources of heaven at your disposal. To thank Jesus for dying for your sins, being resurrected for your salvation, for giving you the power, even in the midst of trials, to have joy. If you're a follower of Christ, let me ask you this question. Are, are you counting at all joy when you meet trials? If you're like me, the answer is yes, sometimes. Lord, help me where I'm not. Are you granting the testing of your faith to produce steadfastness? Are you allowing the work of steadfastness to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? In other words, are you looking to Jesus? Don't miss us. Don't miss us this morning. Our Lord wants us to experience the full enjoyment of our salvation. He does. The Lord wants us to experience the full enjoyment of our salvation, which means this. Joy is not reserved just for the high points in our life. It's something that can sustain us and move us forward even in the difficult times, which all of us face, which all of us face. Let the trying, James writes, let the trying times of your life prove your genuineness to him as he proves his faithfulness to you. Thank him for his mercy. When we go through the trial of, of cause and effect, we brought it on ourselves and the lessons that we learned through that. Find joy when we're being persecuted for being his followers because people noticed that he's our Lord. And even when we go through circumstances where the only answer is we live in this fallen world, just remember, trusting him can draw you closer to him or further away, or further away if you don't. God is faithful. James writes, there's no reason why we shouldn't be faithful to him. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your, your profound love for us. That even your own son, as he came, that he faced trial after trial, test after test, ultimately, 
going to the cross, and yet the scripture tells us that he, he faced the cross with joy, knowing, knowing that it was going to produce our salvation, his exaltation as he sits at the right hand of you, the Father, right now. Lord, thank you so much for, for demonstrating your love to us and allowing us then to enter into this loving relationship with you. I pray if anyone's yet to do that, but even now in the quietness of their heart, they would receive Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life. Lord, thank you for dying for our sins, being resurrected for our salvation. Thank you for allowing us to experience the fullness of our salvation, that even in the midst of trials, we can have joy. Not at the hardship, but at what it produces. The steadfastness, the genuineness of our faith being revealed. And, and God, even beyond that, the maturing of our faith, of growing more and more like Jesus and realizing that when he returns, the work is going to be complete. So Lord, I just pray, if anyone's going through one of those circumstances of life right now, that they would take heart, that God would never put them through anything that they can't handle with him. But he's already providing the victory. And Lord God, each of us, we look forward to the day where we enter into that victor's circle and all of heaven applauds. All of heaven applauds. Lord, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your strength, that we lack nothing in you. And we give you the praise for what you're doing, for allowing us to enter into this book of James together, which you're going to do in and through us as we continue to study it, apply it, live it. And we do all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for his glory. As we've gathered and if you met with us, as we scatter in just a minute, may we scatter sharing his glory, his love, his message with those around us. But others too would be able to, to know the fullness of what it means to be in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.